You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you do not own them in time, they will own you. In 1977, Dennis Kucinich became the mayor of the city of Cleveland and the city's youngest mayor at 31 years old. It was not a good time for the city. Cleveland, which has been in default since midnight Saturday, today learned something of the price it will pay. Sharply reduced city services in the wake of massive layoffs. Bonds in default, power blackouts, high crime police strikes, garbage strikes. He'd end up facing a recall election that he'd win narrowly. For the former congressman, mayor, and presidential candidate who will join us on this podcast today, there was a particular cause for much of this trouble, a power company that was eager to swallow up Cleveland's municipal power operation known as Muni Light. When I was a young councilman entering into politics at age 23, uh, and discovering the city's lights kept going off and on, uh, not necessarily because of the weather, but as it turns out, because the city's electric system was experiencing blackouts because the private power company was creating those blackouts in order to establish a pretext to force the city to sell its electric system to them. Muni Light offered low-cost energy to 46,000 people. But it also had problems, lack of investment, and frequent service interruptions. Members of the Cleveland City Council, political machines, powerful banking interests, wanted the city to sell Muni Light. Union leaders insist the layoffs could be avoided if the mayor would sell the city's money-losing light plant. But he stubbornly refuses. Kucinich was strongly opposed and would not let it happen during his time as mayor. You know, apparently it was a quaint idea that uh, uh, some corporate uh, interests sought and uh, were determined to uh, use their economic power to try to force me to sell it, uh, sell the municipal electric system, which, of course, I did not do. But there was a cost. On December 15, 1978, the city fell into default. It had failed to pay $15 million in notes that it owed. And it became the first city to go into default, first major city in America to go into default since the Great Depression. Fifteen million is a lot of money for you and I. It's even a lot of money for a city like Cleveland back then. But as the Cleveland Plain Dealer, not always a Kucinich fan, said, banks could have easily rolled over what was a fairly small amount for the municipal banking world, into new notes, which they had done already in the past. But instead, the Cleveland Trust Company decided to teach the city a lesson of living within its means at this time with this mayor. The trust company would also suggest that to pay the bonds, they should sell Muni Light. It would later be made apparent that the Cleveland Trust Company owned a portion of CEI, was on its board, and wanted to force that sale. More than that, Kucinich was threatened with assassination, and an attempt is made on his life. We'll talk about all of this, but 
the story of Mayor Kucinich and CEI and Muni Light may have a lot to do with your own electric bill. You know, we don't think about it. We just get it in the mail. And But about 30% of U.S. utilities are like Muni Light. They're municipal or rural cooperatives. These are obviously political as they are owned by the voters. Uh, for example, Lodi, California has a municipal electric system offering rates cheaper than 94% of Californians pay and 30% cheaper than the private company Pacific Gas and Electric. Peter Nally's Texas, the cooperative there, PEC, offers rates about $10 a month cheaper than the Texas average. And if you like, you can run for the board of directors of the company if you were a ratepayer. Omaha's public power is 18% cheaper than national power rates. But these are old legacy systems. Right now, there's a battle in Maine over making its private electric system a public utility. The legislature and Senate in Maine has actually passed this bill. It looks like the governor will veto setting up a longer battle. We'll talk a bit more about uh, what this story means. Let's first get to our interview with Congressman and former Mayor Kucinich. Dennis Kucinich, former mayor of Cleveland, former congressman, presidential candidate. So pleased to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Bruce, thanks uh, a lot. It's great to join you for this uh, important discussion. Thank you. You've written a book, Division of Light and Power. and It almost reads like a fiction novel. It's just very suspenseful. If, if someone reading it could almost think it was fiction, but it's very much not. It was, it's your life story. Well, it's a book, The Division of Light and Power. Is a, it's a story of corporate espionage, corporate sabotage of banks and law firms interfering with the finances of the city, trying to set the city up for a, a financial fall, all to bring about the sale of uh, the municipal electric system to the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. And finally, you know, it's heavily inflected with a mob assassination plot that was all about Muni Light. And Muni Light, that gets it started going back to 1916 as Cleveland, city of Cleveland owned municipal power. Uh, we've talked about on this podcast in the past where that was a big movement right around that time. There were a lot of right. uh, San Francisco, a lot of other you know cities, and Jack London runs as uh, mayor, Oakland, uh, socialist candidate. Oh, this crazy wacko, he wants to uh, munis- municipalize the uh, power, the utilities. And within a few years, Democrats and Republicans were doing it around then. So Cleveland does it in, in 1916, as you say, and it was still going as a municipal muni light at the time you became a councilman. Uh, right. And uh, keep in mind that tr- the tradition of public power stems from that progressive era and resulted in over 2,000 municipally owned electric systems, which provide power to communities at anywhere from, you know, 10 to 40, 45% savings on electric bills as compared to neighboring private power companies. So Cleveland's MuniLite provided 20% cheaper power, uh, and, and it competed door-to-door in a third of the city with the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't know it and, you know, until I entered into the political fray, but CEI had conspired for years to try to put the municipal electric system of Cleveland out of business, pulling every dirty anti-competitive trick in the book and uh this this book is the documented 
account of that. As you said, uh, it's not, you know, reads like fiction, but I've, I have hundreds of pages of documentation. Yeah, it's a good book and, and well-written um, for anybody uh, that's listening. It, it really is. I mean, it's it's like there are some of these books where <laughs> written by former congressmen, I don't have to tell you that, that are that are just kind of plaid. This is, this is very much a story that's being told. You became a councilman at a very young age. Yeah, and when I became a councilman coming from uh, a working class family in Cleveland, uh, one that troublemaking ends meet. Uh, big family grew very fast. My parents were never owners of a home. We were renters. And we, you know, we experienced a lot of the difficulties that people today are experiencing across America of the uncertainty of, you know, having a roof over your head, of uh, sometimes uh, whether you can provide uh, the clothes that you want for the family, the, the food that you want. I mean, you know, I, you know, my parents went through it and the children of which I was the oldest, went through it as well. And so the background that I brought into public service was one where I remembered where I came from. I remember my parents trying to, you know, get enough money to pay a utility bill, counting the pennies on an old table in a three-room apartment where seven of us lived. And, you know, that impressed me enough that when I became mayor, I was there to represent everyone who was counting their pennies. I recall reading that you had a, a cartoon of Ziggy, a kind of figure that represented the average person. <laughs> right. I remember where I came from, and that cartoon uh, of, by Tom Wilson, the famed uh, creator of Ziggy, said, uh, uh, you know, Dennis, don't, don't, don't forget us little people. You know, and the whole idea was uh, not to diminish people, but to raise them up and, and keep their aspirations uppermost in my mind when I took office, and I did that. You know, to me, uh, government must be there uh, for the humblest of people if it's there for the uh, grandest and, and most uh, financially endowed of people. And I've always thought that as mayor, it was my obligation to protect that municipal electric system because it matters what people pay for electricity. It matters what people pay for their water bills or sewer bills, what they pay for consumer goods. And government ought to be there to protect people's economic position. And, uh, you know, apparently it was a quaint idea that uh, uh, some corporate uh, interests sought and uh, were determined to uh, use their economic power to try to force me to sell, it, uh, sell the municipal electric system, which, of course, I did not do. And numerous times as you're a councilman, there are these kind of engineered blackouts, whether it's kind of just not providing muni light the normal support that any other company might get from the other companies on the on the grid, the, the emergency lines that are, are not a, a favor. They're really something we take for granted in the system, just not offering that or disabling it. Right. They, well said. You, you perfectly encapsulated uh, the, um, uh, the strategy of the Cleveland Electric Illuminated Company, which was to isolate the city's electric system and not provide it for backups uh, when there was an outage uh, or to create an out outage and a transfer of power. By the way, that was documented by both the U.S. Justice Department and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Atomic Safety and Licensing Board, as well as part of an antitrust suit against CEI. I mean, we're talking about dirty tricks on a Chinatown scale, okay? We're talking about dirty tricks that uh, most people could never imagine corporations against the city and its people 
And here I was, a 31-year-old mayor, called upon to challenge that. In addition to, you know, Cleveland was the number three corporate capital in America at that time. Just it's important to remember that. You know, we, mm-hmm. had, we had some of the biggest corporate 500 firms located in our city, and they just believed they had a, a, a God-ordained right to call the shots at City Hall. And, of course, at the same time, no coincidence, Cleveland was the bombing capital of America. Organized crime was vying for control of rackets, uh, gambling, prostitution, drugs, loan, loan sharking, uh, to name a few. And here I'm 31 years old. I step into the middle of this with the municipal electric system suddenly uh, becoming at issue. They immediately start trouble for this for the for you as mayor and make make financial life difficult. I mean, directly related to this utilities. Like I suppose Cleveland had its problems, but there was there was nefarious behavior going on just directly related to to CEI. You're right. You're right. And the thing to keep in mind is that the previous mayor got a green light for all the spending and the, and the misspending, and there was no uh, and and I saw it. In retrospect, I saw it as a trap that was being prepared to get this city to spend uh, uh, bond funds for general operating purposes that would then come back and require uh, a, uh, a way of, of, uh, of resolving the deficit. To get this city to overspend with middle management or payroll to inflate the general fund to make it necessary to have another source of revenue, that is, you know, from the sale of the system. To, to cause the city to not make repairs to our, our municipal electric system generators so that uh, we were trapped into, having buy, into buying power from the Cleveland Electric Learning Company, and then they overcharged the city three times, triple, so they'd blow a hole in MuniLite's budget and, uh, and then use the growing cost of electricity to the city as one of the reasons that the city should sell the electric system, that is, sell the electric system to pay the light bill. You're a Cleveland mayor. You're, you're not selling. There are a lot of people trying to get yourself through the normal political means, which aren't that nice, and you're, you're actually threatened. Well, yeah, I, I, when I, just before I became mayor, I was the clerk of the Cleveland Municipal Courts, and the sale of Muni Light had been consummated by the city council and the mayor. And I had people telling me, people, you know, close advisors saying, look, Dennis, it's over. You know, what part of over don't you recognize? Forget about it. You can't do anything about it. You get in as mayor, there's other things you'll be able to take to if you decide to run. And I, I looked at the situation and saw, how in the world can they sell this electric system? It's, it's, there's dirty tricks being played here. So I decided to organize a campaign against it. And when I did that, a high-powered rifle shot missed my head by a fraction of an inch when I was at my home. And uh, later on, when I did become mayor, I was informed by police intelligence that there was an active assassination plot. uh, And we had to take extraordinary steps to make sure that I I was protected. And uh, later on, the same police intelligence had told me, look, this is all about Muni Light. You're stopping some people from making a lot of money. And a U.S. Senate subcommittee on organized crime later on uh, verified everything that uh, uh, was um, uh, happening in Cleveland. I mean, they got the hitman, right? Uh, if I yeah yeah, and and that's that's just an amazing story. And and guys, listen, get that book, get the book, Division of Power and Light. This is hundreds of pages. We're just talking about a few things. Read it for yourself. Read the whole story. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What strikes me here is a couple of things. One is that people will probably associate someone like yourself having run for president on the more fair-to-say liberal side of even the Democratic Party. You, know, you helped Cleveland get one of its Republican mayors at one point. Well, look, I'm... Uh, Whoever runs a city, it's a pragmatic thing. And I really, yes, I did. I helped elect uh, Ralph Perk, uh, who I later on helped defeat. Uh, but uh, my my feeling was that since he committed to saving Muni Light, and if the uh, Democrats don't produce a candidate who is for the people and instead might be for corporate interests, well, you know, don't look to me for help. Like, uh, like in the partisan battles, the Republican Party will, will often get knocked and deservedly so, maybe too much influence from, say, evangelicals or too much influence from some big business, things like that. The Democrats' sin, I think, in a lot of cases, is um, these machines, the, the political machines, particularly in cities, not exclusively. And it maybe doesn't, you know, I've heard from people who are on the more conservative side, like, you guys never talk about that. That's your sin, you know. You you never, you know. But your book really brings it to life that there's an issue, at least back then. It does, and I mean, when I was elected mayor, it's important to remember that I defeated both the Democratic machine and the Republican organization. Mm-hmm. I was elected as an independent, and you know that's my approach to politics is independent. Look to me. Partisan politics only works if the people somehow win in the discussion. And when the people do not win, partisan politics is just an insider's game and becomes a racket and enriches a few at the expense of the many. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, oh, when I write the book, The Division of Light and Power, it's a book written for liberals, conservatives, for uh, left, right. Uh, keep in mind that I, ma- I, I manage the city of Cleveland. Uh, uh, and reduce spending by 18% without cutting services through the elimination of waste, fraud, and abuse, ran the city on a cash basis, there may not have been another city in America, another mayor to claim that. And so, you know, I'm, I, I think that, the, uh, that one must be conservative with taxpayers' dollars, that one must stop government from wasting that, that you can't let a machine gobble up those resources for its own ends. And so I... You know, I steer a course between all the partisanship and the ideologies to, uh, that is, is pragmatic, practical, and it gets results. 
power is something that people take for granted and maybe even did then and you just think about it being on and you think of course you think about it strongly when it's not on so that was that, that that's part of the story but uh, people do take a little for granted and costs do go up you are seeing things um i mean when you hear about national stories that come up like going back a bit the the whole enron and the california related debacle that gray davis and others had to go through there or more recently Texas and what they experienced changing right. the system. I mean, does that kind of hit a nerve for you? Or you? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing from people in California, in Texas, um, in, and, you know, in other states who are contending with utilities who have tried to run roughshod over people or who have created uh, problems where the public doesn't have appropriate access uh, to be able to remedy lack of attention to infrastructure and other matters that put the public at risk. What happened in California with Pacific Gas and Electric is an object case. Uh, Paradise, California burns to the ground because of improper maintenance. What, what happened in, uh, the, uh, in Ohio and the East Coast uh, at the beginning of uh, uh, about 20 years ago when you had a blackout affecting 50 million people on the East Coast because it didn't properly maintain uh, the electrics, uh, the um, uh, wires and kept them clear of debris. Uh, that was CEI. And CEI also uh, had a hole in its reactor vessel that could have created an, uh, a, um, a meltdown. And I, I document that as well in the book. Uh, these And what's happened in Texas, they didn't, improve, they didn't improve the infrastructure where they were warned 10 years earlier that, look, if you don't do this, you, you know, and you end up with a, a nasty winter, you're going to not be able to provide uh, the power needs of the people. And then what they did in Texas, of course, is because they weren't connected to the grid, uh, the cost of power went up, went through the roof for many Texans. And, you know, this idea that the division of light and power is really the first close look that, that anybody uh, from the inside has mm-hmm. taken at the, uh, at the uh, nasty anti-competitive greedy practices of some of these utilities and in this case uh one you know one utility in particular the cleveland electric illuminating company is totally exposed as having been a um uh, um an organization you know almost a an, almost a not almost a criminal organization operating as a utility muni light is still still around yeah it is mm-hmm. uh, but the city has neglected to protect it and so it got into some contracts that have um, inexplicably allowed the rates to float above the uh, uh, Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. And, and to me, how in the world can you operate a municipal utility and not keep rates low? You have to really screw things up mm. to be in that position. And, you know, this city, unfortunately, has, has done that, but it doesn't nullify the the urgency of holding on to municipal power system you can always correct those those issues of finance but if you get rid of the system you're at the mercy of the private power companies and um, other than uh, i mean it might be difficult to 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 say uh to establish new ones i don't know if there's any talk of that out there but um short of that what can uh, people what do you think people can do yeah. Bruce, the book makes it the book makes it very clear. I mean, people have a right to have their own electric systems. You know, there is a process in every state where people can establish their own electric systems through their corporate entities uh, as as cities. 
and uh, you know it's it, it's a price of eminent domain, and you have to pay what what the system's worth. You issue revenue bonds, and the customers over a period of time pay off the bonds, and before you know it, you're not only lowering taxes, but people are able to save money on their electric bills. And my my you know the book, the Division of Light and Power. Uh, reviews those processes in, in great depth mm. and how Cleveland came very close to being able to do that a couple times, but were beaten back by these private interests who uh, hover around uh, the um, uh, uh, nexus of private utilities and banking, which, you know, there's a very close relationship there that I, I um, discuss in the book. Well, great. And besides we talked of what we talked about so far, what did we miss? Anything? This this book is really about a young person in government who didn't sell out, somebody who didn't join the club, even though I'd been in politics for a while, and steered an independent course to represent the people. And, uh, you know, a lot of young people wonder if they can make a difference. Well, you can only make a difference if you don't sell out. If you want to advance in politics by cutting the deals, uh, you're already lost. You might as well take another line of work that's uh, more honest. Um, and And so the book is it, that's that's the story uh but it also explains why electricity why electricity bills are so high wherever people live and w- what the connection is with political machines and these utilities and the media and the utilities and all the other institutions in the community and I, i'd just like to conclude with a kind of a meditation if you'd call it that on this issue that that was developed by tom johnson the mayor of Cleveland at the turn of the century, the guy who founded Munilite, he said, I believe in public ownership of all municipal service facilities, of waterworks, of parks, of schools, and of electric systems, because if you do not own them in time, they will own you. They'll corrupt your politics, rule your institutions, and finally, destroy your liberties. And he really understood it back then. And it's, it was true then. It's true today. Munilite, uh, uh, lives uh, the division of light and power in Cleveland is still alive, and this book hopefully will help others either keep their systems alive and keep uh, or bring new ones to life. And finally, keep in mind, you know, when this American Rescue Plan money runs out, the privatizers are going to be hovering over uh, cities like buzzards uh, 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 circling a highway, looking for roadkill. They'll be looking to to try to force cities to sell these assets. And of course, when that happens, people end up paying more and taxes go up. So something to watch. Um, Dennis Kucinich, much appreciated. Thanks for coming on. The book is Division of Light and Power. Highly recommend it. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you. Cleveland is the capital of polka dancers whirling in sawdust frenzied drummers, and accordion players, until the floor becomes a human top, decorated with the blur of faces spinning. So writes Dennis Kucinich in his book, The Division of Light and Power. I love Cleveland, the former mayor says. It's easy to fall in love with this city. I love the Croatian festivals, where a single phrase, I am proud to be a Croatian, can electrify a crowd. I love the Oktoberfest. I shake hands with thousands of revelers. The Italian brass band of Our Lady at Mount Carmel. The members dressed in black pants, white shirts, and black ties. Sitting in an elevated platform, lit by the stars. 
and a string of incandescent lights, playing so sweetly you could see the tears of old-timers glisten in the moonlight. Those inspiring poles of little Warsaw, wearing small red and white flag pins, crossing the staff of old glory. The excitement of the hallelujah chorus of the storefront churches in Cleveland's black neighborhoods. The converted temples, where hymns of paradise are channeled through blue and gold rhythms of the choirs. On February 27, 1979, voters in Cleveland voted overwhelmingly to do two things, to increase their city income tax and to keep the municipal light and power operating. Final unofficial tally, according to the Washington Post, showed that the referendum raising the city income tax won 74,286 to 34,640, while the issue calling for selling the city-owned municipal light system lost, meaning voters supported the municipal light system, 38,782 to 69,849. Mayor Dennis Kucinich told the cheering supporters that the people of Cleveland are fed up with fat cats trying to tell them how to run their government. It allowed citizens to keep the municipal power system and to avoid a state controlling board to oversee the city's finances with which Governor James Rhodes of Ohio had suggested for Cleveland. Kucinich did not win the next election. Uh, George Voinovich won that. The referendum in February 1979 did one thing. It assured that the municipal light system would be there because even Voinovich had to make backing the municipal light system part of his platform. Kucinich, as we know, became a congressman and uh, actually is running for mayor of Cleveland again. If he wins, he will have become both the youngest mayor of Cleveland and the oldest person to serve as mayor of Cleveland. Power, electric power, is a big part of the New Deal. It's something that Franklin Roosevelt campaigns for. In 1932, speaking in Portland, Oregon, on national radio, FDR attacked holding companies and called for a massive federal program of dam building and rural electrification. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
The question of power, FDR declared, is primarily a national problem. He lambasted the utilities for unprincipled campaigns of misinformation that flooded newspapers and airwaves with self-serving claims. He circulated school lesson plans extolling utilities and justifying higher rates. Now, what is this? Is uh, I'm just giving a commercial for the New Deal or FDR? No, not exactly. I know there are politics there, and I know there are two sides to everything. I do want to say, though, that by the end of the 1920s, with all of the stock trades that had gone on, mergers, and you have to remember at that time, a lot of the financing was unregulated and some of the deals were not visible. Just nine companies controlled 75% of power in the United States. So it shouldn't be shocking that this is something that the New Deal wants to go after. And for all of that corporate interest and holding companies in electric did not lead to some great new investments for people who didn't have energy. So you also needed to build electric into the rural areas. And that, of course, the most famous example is the Tennessee Valley Authority, still today the largest public power company in the United States serving 8.5 million people. But it comes at a price for Roosevelt too, it's a political price. It's no surprise when you know that context that his third opponent in his race for president in 1940 comes from the executive of the power companies, and that's Wendell Wilkie. He's a former power company executive. Yes, Wilkie is picked because he's not an isolationist, and the Republican Party needs to find someone who isn't an isolationist. It's 1940, Nazi Germany's expanding, the democracies are threatened, the Republican Party can't run someone and just let FDR have that issue. So they pick Wilkie for that reason, but it's also because... Wilkie was one of the more forceful opponents of a New Deal program on the national stage who could relate to people as a folksy Indiana um, lawyer, but also the executive of a power company and able to speak well. But what where Wilkie made his chops is in meetings in the White House where he took Roosevelt on one-on-one in some cases um, sometimes very loudly, some thought rudely. The two didn't like each other, at least at that time. But also in Congress, where he's very influential, and power companies were very influential among members of Congress. And Roosevelt wanted badly to have power companies regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, particularly if they were a holding company that owned a lot of utilities in different areas across states. And he wanted the ability to do the so-called, the power companies called it the death clause. And he wanted the ability to, to terminate companies that were too large. They didn't quite get it. And it's because of a series of negotiations that happened and also a big mistake made by the power companies. Now, all through this debate, Roosevelt makes it clear, the development of utilities should remain with certain exceptions a function for private initiative and private capital. He wants the federal government, not the puny state governments, to regulate power. But he does want power to be largely private, not the TVA and a few others. There's a couple of things that happen. Hugo Black of Alabama, senator who's later going to become a Supreme Court justice, holds investigative hearings and during the consideration of the Holding Company Act and exposes excessive and dishonest utility lobbying activities. That 
money's being spent for a lot of lobbying from what ratepayers are paying. The first thing they do is take Philip Gadsden, who's the chairman of the Committee of Public Utility Executives. He's a lobbying group. He doesn't know he's going to testify before Congress. They rush into his office, give him that subpoena, and put him to Capitol Hill and put him in a pod and put him behind a desk. He's not time to, without time to prepare, he exposes some bad lobbying practices of the industry. Something else happens. There's a lot of grassroots and letters being written to congressmen from utility payers and rate payers. Some are supportive of legislation, but a lot of them are against the proposed bills. Except a representative in Pennsylvania, Dennis Driscoll, finds that he had received over 800 telegrams opposing the bill, but he starts looking into them. All of them had come from a small town in his district named Warren. Three senders' name in four started with the early letters of the alphabet. Hmm, sounds like they came from like a phone book list or a utility customers list. Then as he started to contact people, his office started to contact people, they denied they had authored these letters at all. He found that the Office of Associated Gas and Electric which was not really a power-producing company, but a 10-layer holding company, had a salesperson generate these telegrams, and they stopped after a certain letter. They did get some people to legitimately sign letters by paying messenger boys three cents for each signature that they could get. They brought up some of these people who had signed the documents legitimately, but they admitted they had no idea what they were signing. So they go after this company, AG&E, and the president, Howard Hobson, but he avoids them. I mean, literally so. Hobson starts changing hotels in Washington, D.C., driving around Virginia, driving around West Virginia. He then agrees to appear before the House because the House isn't as tough as Hugo Black's Senate committee. Well, once he does that, as he's leaving the House hearing, the Senate process server gets him there. Hobson's security staff muscles the man aside. There is literally then a chase around buildings and in the streets of D.C., and another subpoena is issued. Hobson ignores it. The whole Senate, unanimously angry at this defiance of them as a body, issues a warrant for Hobson's arrest on charges. He then is forced to come to Senate. When he comes to Senate, his testimony, as much as he tries to disguise it, is not helpful exposes the amount that they're spending on lobbying, exposed that in some cases they have evidence that uh, that he can't deny that they take dividend money away from shareholders, put it into the pocket of executives or into lobby lobbying activities. They destroyed records. A lot of the evidence is from Hobson's own tax returns. So eventually Congress will pass legislation enabling the SEC to review holding companies under antitrust law. They're not able to do what's called the death sentence, not able to directly um, just end companies or terminate companies. But they do have companies, if they're in several jurisdictions and they're too large, they can submit to an adjustment period and work out with the SEC, a program that will flatten them out, essentially. A little bit slower version. Uh, In the end, 769 companies are going to be split from holding companies between 1938 and 1953. Now, I presented a lot about public power, and I think it's important to know. I think it's a more novel thing for most people. I may not just even be aware of it. There are There is another side. I mean, um, one of the things, Power Magazine, which is going to be more 
of the private industry's view explains, uh, provides the example of JEA in the Jacksonville area in Florida. As a government-owned utility, there are a number of restraints imposed upon it through government organization. The Florida Constitution, different state statutes, city charter. That means JEA can do things or cannot do things. More rooftop solar behind-the-meter storage, demand-side management solutions, distributed water systems, data algorithms that allow JEA to provide customers better are not allowed by various statutes of the Florida State Constitution. So there's not as much room, perhaps, to innovate or to add new technologies with a public system. That's at least their argument. There's also the argument you can make with any publicly-owned entity, right, that because there's no competition, whether it's private or public, if it's a monopoly for providing you the energy, there's no competition. Where's the incentive to innovate? Presumably voters, but that's a tough, you know, that's proven tough through many examples to use the voting ballot box, which can get colluded with a lot of other political issues and horse trading to improve services. You do see some deregulation in certain areas. I know where I live, there's there's certain choices you can have, for instance, splitting up the provision of the energy and the distribution of the energy, two different things, to get the best cost. And that may not be possible with a public system, or it could be. So there's all of these questions to consider. I don't want to be to present that, you know, there's only one side of this thing. Another argument that I've heard, you know, is just as an apples and oranges sometimes with public versus private power, that some of the public utilities are in cities and look different from some of the private concerns, which include suburbs as well and have different needs and systems and are harder to compare when you start talking about rates. Fair enough, perhaps. In any case, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I know I did. It's a lot, it's a lot of it's new for me. Uh, my experience thus far is, you know, paying my utility bill. We want to thank Dennis Kucinich for coming on the program. His book is The Division of Light and Power. The cover of it looks like a novel, and I think the, the reason for that is that it can it can be up there with any fiction, but it's unfortunately stunningly real, and if you want a little sense of how local politics go, um, that's there. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We're part of Airwave Media. We've got shows from Mark Bittman, from the founder of Snopes, and Ben Franklin's world on that network as well. Ben Mathis's kick-ass news and kick-ass politics. Great stuff. Happy to be a part of it. Keep listening and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts if you are not already. That helps the program greatly. Write us a review if you can uh, at Twitter at at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.